This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 86 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel we have Andrew Madsen. Hi from Salt Lake City. Alondo Brewington. He must be using Shush too. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Joshua Howland. Hi, guys. You want to introduce yourself real quick? Sure. My name's Joshua Howland. I'm an iOS developer, and uh, I work for a company called DevMountain. We, we teach, we have a 12-week course on iOS development that we're having a lot of fun with. Awesome. So it's a 12-week course. You've got some graduates at this point. Yeah, we've been through two cohorts so far. So we've sent about 35, 40 graduates through. And we're just about to start. The way it works, one of the things that we do that's a little bit unique is that it's an after-hours course. So you can work your full-time job or whatever. And then classes start at 6 and go to 9, three days a week. And then they're on Saturdays for a few hours. And so that allows us to educate people while they're still working and allows them to make the transition more easily. So yeah, so we just finished our last two after-hours cohort, and we're just about to start another after-hours cohort in two weeks. So we're, we're getting ready for that. Are you teaching them Swift or uh, Objective-C? The curriculum is all in Objective-C. And in fact, the class as it's being taught is taught with Objective-C. But all of the class resources are available in Swift. I tried to go all Swift with this last cohort, and about two weeks in, Apple made changes to the compiler, and all of my previously written curriculum all of the code and practice materials broke. I mean, not all of it, but a, a huge chunk of it had, had broken. So I had to go back and fix it all And the students. It's really hard, I think, where Swift is currently for students to learn on kind of a, a, a bit of a moving platform. And so we're keeping them on Objective-C for now. Plus, today, if you went to get a job as an iOS developer, it just wouldn't make sense if you were Swift only. So we do have a couple classes that are on Swift, but for the most part, we stay in Objective-C. Now, are these students coming with their own laptops, or are you providing that during the, the duration of the course as well? Yeah, no, the, the students have to provide their own laptops, their own, if they want to use iPhones, their own iPhones. Uh, we provide, they get a textbook. We use the pretty decent iPhone coding book. I got to look up which one it is now that I brought it up, but we give them a textbook and a bunch of code on GitHub, but for the most part, you know, they bring their own laptop. Okay, so the, so the course of this, uh, during the course, they're starting with sort of the basics and then getting into an actual project. Is that the way that it's structured or? 
it's really practical. They build about 40 applications over the course. I mean, applications, right? Like, kinky little things, but maybe 10 pretty strong applications, like a Pomodoro timer app, or they do a day one ripoff called Day X, and a number of other just kind of small, a scorekeeper app. So they do these small apps along the way, and then halfway through the course, we set them off to work on their own capstone project. So they get to pick a big project they want to work on, and then they'll spend maybe six weeks and you know however many hours they have available in that time to build their very own project. We've had some pretty impressive capstone projects come out. Anything that's made its way into the App Store? Most of the students actually get an app in the App Store. Some of them even have two. So we've had uh, multiple students with a couple apps. So one of my favorites is uh, that's in the App Store right now is Pointedly, which is a scorekeeper app. Wired In, which is one Caleb Hicks, uh, one of my good friends, he went through the course he did. Then there's a Piano Timer app. The Piano Timer one's pretty cool because it, it only counts down the timer while the piano is playing. So if you put it next to the piano while your kid's practicing piano, and then it listens for certain frequencies, and if, if no one's playing the piano, then it doesn't count down. So you get to kind of torture your kids with actual practice time. But there have been some pretty cool ones. And like I said, it's very practical. In fact, you know, we spend only a little bit of time on theory. It's mostly just, this is how you build this, this is how you build that, these are the APIs Apple gives you. And everything's about building and, and doing and experiencing. Because I think, you know, that's obviously how you really learn the program. Along with that, I'm kind of curious uh, about what things you focus on. So iOS development is a huge topic, and there are tons of different frameworks and APIs and different kinds of apps you can write. And I imagine you have to basically teach a subset of that. Can you kind of talk about what the subset is that you think is sort of the essential stuff for somebody to learn that's going through the course? So we start out really, really basic, right? It, it's stuff like how to put a view in. And then it, from there, it goes into things like the navigation stack, tab board controllers. We spend some time networking. We spend some time with third-party code, pulling in CocoaPod submodules, that kind of thing, so that they can go to GitHub and get you know libraries or useful tools. And then the first six weeks is every day is an, a new UI kit object. Or I mean, we do a lot of time on table views, probably it's probably our most, we spend most of our time on table views, data source delegate method, because the delegate model, you know, is so strong in Objective-C that, and in Swift, but in Cocoa, I guess. But if you can really nail down how a table view and the delegate works there, then the other delegates start to make a little bit more sense, or the protocols start to make sense. So we spent a lot of time in that. And then the last six weeks, every class has a one-hour lecture on a topic like MapKit, for example. And so instead of diving deep into MapKit, we spend an hour review what MapKit is, kind of go over the API endpoints, what Apple makes available to you, and then we let them loose. And then any student that has MapKit in their capsule project can go talk to the teacher and get further instruction on MapKit and how, you know, a little bit more detail. So the first six weeks, we give them the foundation for walking away with learning. And, and I think what we found is most people that want to learn iOS, they start and they try. And the hardest thing is, knowing how to learn iOS. So it's, I think what we teach them what that's the most powerful is we give them the skills necessary so that they feel like moving forward that they can take the time and if they put in the work that they're actually going to be able to figure it out and make it happen. Because we give them the tools how to read through Apple Docs, how different APIs, what is Apple's style of the way the APIs work and how the code should fit together and the life cycle of view controller. You know, little things that are hard to pick up on your own but as we work through with them for 12 weeks, they walk away with the ability to really dig down and, and build on their own. Are you typically looking for people who have 
other kinds of programming experience, or are you looking for people who are brand new to programming? This is probably the most common question I get from potential students is, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really good enough yet at programming. So we've had a lot of students go through the web first and then come into iOS. And they always say the same thing. They say, I just wanted to understand programming before I jumped into iOS. I just, I think it's silly. It's like saying I needed to learn Japanese. So I studied Spanish for 12 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, obviously learning a second language is difficult. You know, obviously learning something that's a completely different way of thinking is difficult. But if you're up to that in learning in any language, you're going to, I think, you know, objective C is no more difficult. And in my opinion, you know, it's more verbose. It's uh, a little bit more, well, it's more legible for me. Obviously, it's, it's like my native programming language. But And so I, I really think, and this actually the same kind of goes for Swift. They're very, it's the kind of language where if you're going to pick it up, uh, knowing another language, I don't think helps that much. So we do spend a good first week kind of diving into thinking like a programmer. How does a programmer see things and how do they approach problems and how do they solve problems? And so whether you come in with a background in Ruby or no background at all, I think you do really well. In fact, Chuck, you and I talked a while ago about this. I think the best students are ones that, that want to think that way. And so it's not just, just show me how to build an app. It's, I want to think this way and I want to understand the way developers think. And when they start thinking that way, when they have the desire to think that way, it gives them the ability to learn. And so the developers that do come from other backgrounds, they do really well. But that doesn't mean that the students that don't come from another background don't do well, because I think, I think they do pick it up pretty quickly. What do you think? Maybe this is too broad of a question. Maybe it's not, not easy to answer. But talking about somebody who's starting from scratch, who doesn't have programming experience, what are the, some of the things that are, you find are kind of stumbling blocks, the hard parts for them to grasp? Frames. <laughs> no, I think whatever they approach first. It's hard because programming is hard because it's a different way of thinking. It's not innately hard because of what it is. It's hard because we're not used to thinking the way that programs are written. And so whatever it is that they're learning at first, that's going to be the thing that they struggle with. And it's really interesting because we kind of transitioned how we did pre-course material and pre-class readings so that by the time they're in class learning something, it's their third or fourth time working on it. That way, they've started to grasp, you know, whatever it is. I mean, there are things that I think are programmatically complex that uh, students don't struggle with at all, right? Like having things on a background thread versus a main thread uh, is something that a student doesn't, they don't struggle with it. And the reason they don't struggle with it is because they don't have to think about it. They just say, wait, which, which thread is this on, right? Oh, it's on the background thread. I got to move it to the main thread in order to change the UI, right? But the things that the students do struggle with, like I, like I kind of mentioned frames, thinking about an, an X coordinate, a Y coordinate, a width and a height, their very first day, which is we do frames on the first day, their minds just blow. I mean, they're, they're like, I have no idea what you're doing on the, on the board there. Like, what does this even mean? Like, what language, what, what is, what is this? This is alien, which is weird. To me, and probably very weird to you, you're like, why would things be hard? But this is like a completely new way of this person thinking. And so it acts as a stumbling block. The other thing, I guess, coming from an object-oriented programming standpoint, is the difference between a class and an instance. And I think that is hard to explain. And because it's hard to explain, is, is, is being hard to explain probably makes it hard to understand. Because we're, we're probably not giving the best explanation possible. But I think... 
students have a hard time grasping, unless they come from a background of an object-oriented programming. They have a hard time breaking, separating the class from the instance. Now, are the students being introduced to auto layout at this portion to sort of mitigate the stumbling block of frames or just having a different relationship to understanding how views are laid out? That's the kind of the hard part is if they're struggling with frames, do you start with auto layout the first day? Because auto layout's, you know, not for the faint of heart if you have never written, you know, view layout code at all, right? So we come into auto layout about the third week. And I think even though we spend a significant portion of time on auto layout, it, again, it, just like frames, it's just kind of this thing that the students, their brains aren't working that way. And so uh, it takes time. And some of our students walk away masters of auto layout and masters of frames. And some of our students come away really struggling to figure out how to create a, a decent constraint, how to make their views layout. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with their ability and their desire to wrap their brains around something that's, that's complex and that they haven't thought of or experienced before. Okay. Do you think, question, I get into this discussion with my brother a lot. He's actually an artist, but we, we sometimes talk about programming or art talent. I, I, I can't even draw a circle. Like I have no artistic talent whatsoever. But what do you think about the idea that some students just have a natural aptitude and others don't? And um, I mean, do you think you see that? Do you see people who try really hard and really never get there as opposed to other people who don't have to try very hard, pick it up really easily and become great iOS programmers? Or do you think if everybody works hard, you know, I mean, it's really just effort put in and desire that matters? I am consistently shocked by which students come away the best students. There's obviously one or two students that are going to come in, and they're going to come in with a background in development, and they're going to understand the concept more easily, and they're going to move forward more quickly. But the rest of the students, so say the other 95% of the students, I'm always shocked by which students come away with the best-looking code, the best understanding of APIs. And it has almost none of it in my mind comes, it has to do with their aptitude. It has to do with their work ethic. And the students who put in the time and care so much about the product that they're building or what, what they're working on, they're the ones that just, I mean, in the iOS element, right, we have uh, Matt Thompson is a really good example of just the most prolific programmer in probably all of the industry, right? And he just accomplishes so much and just builds so many things, right? And I don't think it's because Matt has an aptitude for building lots of things. I think it's because Matt Thompson is digging in and spending time building stuff while the rest of us are watching TV shows or browsing Twitter, right? And I, it's powerful when you dig down and write code, how much you're able to learn about the code that you're writing and how much you're able to understand about the APIs. It's when I'm implementing a, some, something in an app, I spend a little bit of time researching and trying to understand how the API works and how, it, how my code's going to look, but I don't really understand until I've written the, those lines of code. And that's kind of the same thing with their students. The aptitude is not nearly as important with digging down and actually putting your fingers to the keys and typing. It's interesting because uh, if you've read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, he points this out, you know, that there are some people that, you know, may have a natural aptitude or talent for the piano. But the ones that wind up going to the academies where blah, 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 you're an awesome student and you become well-known in your field and all that stuff, they're the ones that put the hours into practice. The aptitude may lead you to learn about those things or, you know, to be interested in it in the first place. 
But the thing that's going to determine whether or not you're a success is actually the rest of it, where you go in and you practice every day and you do what you've got to do in order to make it. I, and I think that's become pretty popular. I think he talks about um, spending 10,000 hours on, on whatever it is you're trying to master. And, of course, there's been some criticism of that, that the number is not really 10,000 hours and, and there's not a hard number and whatever. But anyway, for the purposes of discussion, I'm kind of curious because this brings up something I wonder about, which is that I've been doing Objective-C development for getting close to 10 years now. I consider myself good at it, but I kind of feel like I really only got good at it after years and years of doing it. And I sort of wonder, Joshua, what you think about this idea that you can actually learn to be a, a good developer in 12 weeks. Do you think that's really true, or do you think you're giving people a good foundation and then they need there, there's just some certain amount of time that they do have to put in beyond that to really be good? This is my second most popular answer or question. And it's actually my favorite to answer because if you know by my backstory, so my backstory is I'm an econ major. I went to BYU, graduated in economics, got a job as a, as a financial analyst at Zions Bank where I worked for three years in the worst time of the market. So it was 2008 when the, when the market crashed. And when I thought about getting into iOS development, I didn't even decide to learn. I just said, I want apps in the store. So I actually hired Indians to build the apps for me and, you know, paid them like $2,000 for four apps. And they were awful and they were crashing like crazy. And so the only way that I could really make money off of these apps was to actually go and figure out how to fix those bugs. And so digging into the code was how I learned. And like you said, Andrew, it took me years to really figure out what it took to build these apps out and to make them work. And even more than that, it took some time working in a dev shop with a senior engineer, reading the senior engineer's code and asking questions and getting answers about that uh, before I became um, what I would consider you know, proficient in the language. So I tell my students pretty consistently, I wouldn't expect you to walk away as a senior engineer, obviously. You know, you're not going to be able to solve your own problems, which is kind of, if I have to separate between what is a senior engineer and what is a junior engineer, I always say, a senior engineer says, this is my problem that I need to solve, and I know how to do that. And a junior engineer says, this is my problem, I don't know how to solve it, I need to find someone that can help me figure out how to solve it. And so I tell my students that you might not know how to solve these problems. You might need, you know, guidance and help from, from other engineers. And so I, I tell my students, you're going to want to find a job uh, as a junior engineer in a dev shop where you can learn from smart guys that have been doing it for a while. And that's how you really, really learn. And so I think what we give them is the ability to figure out how this works. What we give them is the ability to not be scared away by Apple Docs, right? Like every student that comes in, they've done the same thing. They've spent hours and hours doing things like Ray Wenderlich tutorials, where they go to a Ray Wenderlich tutorial, they suss out the code, and they try and figure out these little things that they can change to try and get whatever it is that they want to build, built, right? And we try and teach them a way that is understand the fundamentals of it, understand how to look up APIs on your own, and not be afraid of the actual code and the actual documentation. And I think that that's what we give them, not, hey, you're going to be a senior developer. Now that said, I mean, and this is a big deal, right? Like I have students that are making, you know, $15 an hour. And so I tell them every single one of my students, every single one of them can get a job working for a contracting shop that as a junior developer on a team with another senior developer for $30, $35 an hour right after graduating. And they can get that job and they can learn and work under a, a senior developer. And that's a big step up for a lot of these guys. And 
I'm not saying like you're going to graduate and you're going to be immediately doing $75 an hour, right? But I have some students that graduated in the first cohort that are already charging close to that because they spent their time working under a senior engineer for the last six months. And it's, it's really, really powerful. I just had one question about the tools. I was just wondering if you found the development environment being an impediment at all or, or if it's just people had an easier time uh, in comparison to maybe some other some other development environments that you've worked with. Okay, so this is a moment of truth for me. And I, I'd actually like to hear from the three of you because this is the thing. I hear this all the time. Like Xcode is not a powerful ID or like there are better ones out there. So the only other one I've ever used was Eclipse for Android development, which sucked monkey balls. And, uh, <laughs> oh, come on. Tell us how you really feel. No, it was the freaking worst experience of my life. Like I was like, please put me back in Xcode. And the Ruby engineers that I work with, they all use Vim in, just in terminal, right? And no. so when you say... Oh, I'm an Emacs guy, sorry. You're an Emacs guy. It's a, well, regardless, even Emacs in terminal, right? Don't say it. Don't say it. No, go ahead. Say it. Is that better than Xcode? Because are there uh, like autocomplete stuff in Emacs that's, that's as powerful as the autocomplete in Xcode? You know what? I, this is a sincere question. What are the better IDEs out there? Because I, I just don't know. And so I tell my, my students, I never have a problem with the IDE for my students because A, they don't know any better. And B, I think it's the best because I've never had experience with a better IDE. Now, I can say from just my development experience, I completely agree with you in regards to uh, Eclipse. <laughs> in fact, that was one of the one of the reasons why I, I stopped doing as much Android development as I was in the past. Uh, I am giving Android Studio a, a try now. But I came into iOS development from Windows, and I was using Visual Studio, which I found to be a pretty good um, IDE. And I'd used some Borland IDEs before then. But I've been quite pleased with uh, Xcode. It's come a long way. It's a really good development environment. Um, I do use App Code uh, for refactoring code, just because it still has some features that are a bit better. But Xcode has closed that gap quite a bit as well. So I'm in agreement as far as the quality of Xcode and for um, iOS development. I think it, it works just fine. I'm kind of in the same boat as you, Joshua. The main experience I've had with IDEs other than Xcode is the development tools for writing firmware for embedded controllers, for microcontrollers. And those are uniformly terrible. I mean, they're, they're a joke. They're so bad, but it's because the companies don't really care. And if you're writing for that microcontroller, you don't have any choice. In terms of Emacs or Vim, I mean, I think that's kind of silly. I mean, that's not an IDE, and you're not going to sit no. a brand-new programming student down in front of Vim and say, here, you're going to learn how to program and learn all the, these frameworks in this brand-new language, oh, and a program that works completely differently than any other computer program you've ever used in your life. Like, it's just not feasible. So I'm kind of in agreement that, especially for somebody new, Xcode is really, really good, and it it's just the kind of thing you need when you're getting started doing programming. I'm going to jump in here as well. So for my Ruby stuff and JavaScript stuff, I tend to opt for Emacs. And yes, it doesn't have the autocomplete stuff that, you know, you like to have in normal IDEs and it doesn't have built-in refactorings and things as far as those are useful. The flip side for me though is that um, I can move through a project very quickly with those. But, you know, we're, we're not talking about, you know, me as kind of a command line power user person. Um, if we're talking about just teaching people, yeah, I mean, I, I opt for using either, you know, in Ruby, Komodo or, uh, RubyMine, Komodo does JavaScript as well, 
or WebStorm. And RubyMine and WebStorm are both done by JetBrains, who also does app code. And those are terrific IDEs. The, the issue that I generally have with IDEs is that they usually are very complicated programs, and I usually only wind up using a handful of the features that are in them. So the autocomplete is nice. Some of the code navigation stuff is nice. The way that you can visualize some of the classes and the interactions between the classes is nice. But sometimes when I'm working in code, you know, I just need everything else to go away or I need it to act in a particular way. And I seem like it seems like I'm able to get that a little bit better with the text editors. So for me, it really just comes down to how you work. But I haven't seen anything in Xcode or AppCode or any of the other IDEs that really help or hinder you either way. I mean, as long as somebody's there to kind of guide you through and say, you write the code in the M file, and then you write the code in the, or in the H file, sorry, and then in the M file. And then um, when you compile it, you run it in the, you know, you build and run. And then if it builds properly, then you can go and you can do your thing in the, uh, simulator, you know, and so you, you have somebody show you how to work a process through in there. I, I think that's way more important than what tool you're using, unless the tool is just not up to par. And I have to totally agree with you on the Android development tools. I haven't met an IDE that I liked for building Android apps, and I, I've only done a little bit of it, so there, there may be an IDE out there, maybe JetBrains, they have their Java IDE, and maybe that works great for Android. But the one that they tell you to go install with Eclipse is awful. So, you know. And, uh, I, and, I, and I use, I just, you just reminded me that I, I do use PyCharm for Python development. I had forgotten that, that, that. But even PyCharm, I don't, I don't like it as much as I like Xcode. And maybe it's because Xcode is my first IDE. But the other thing, Alondo, is that these are students that, like, they have no idea what to look at, right? And so, Xcode, what Chuck was just talking about, which is, Xcode's ability to modify or click and see, you know, the command click a method and you can see it in the header file or command click a property and you can see where it was defined and control click or option click, I don't remember which it is now, the a class. And now you can see the actual documentation. I tell my students, the best Apple working for Apple is like they're building code, building apps for iOS is, is really powerful because there's this Bible of documentation where for like JavaScript or Ruby, there's no real Bible of documentation like there is for all of the APIs, every single API available for iOS. And so they can command click or control click, get into the documentation and read that. And Xcode is, is a powerful tool for a beginner, I think. Yeah, the documentation lookup is definitely handy, especially when you're learning. But yeah, the only issue I ever have with IDEs is that they do way more than I need them to most of the time. And I just, you know, it's like, okay, where is that one thing that I need? And, you know, sometimes that gets in my way. But other than that, if they're if they're well-designed, they work fine. And ultimately, like I said before, if you have somebody that can go in and show you how to do the work in Xcode, then Xcode's the tool. And then, you know, as you gain more experience, then you can go and try out some of the other things. Otherwise, I don't think it really matters as long as the IDE is up to par if you're using Xcode or AppCode or something else that will do the job and, you know, perform nicely. Let me ask another question. So we teach, for example, for networking, we spend two days on basic networking, then we have a number of days, obviously, where we do do some networking code. But we talk about NSURL connection and NSURL session, and uh, we also use AF networking. So here's a question for you guys. Do I teach the students AF networking mostly and just not even really worry about them understanding what APIs are behind AF networking? Because we just kind of assume that 
now we're moving to Alamo Fire, and those kinds of things will always be available. And, and for that matter, how many engineers out there today know anything but AF networking for iOS uh, networking code, right? And so basically any project these students sit down on is going to be based and use AF networking, right? Do they need to understand NSU connection, NSU session in order to be competitive in the marketplace, in order to seem like a reasonable hire when people are interviewing them? I can only answer this kind of with my personal biases completely intact. And so I'm stating that up front. And I think people who listen to the show regularly know that I'm kind of biased against third-party code and AF networking is most definitely included in that. I think that uh, speaking, and also speaking personally in terms of mixed-in key, which is the only place I've ever had input in hiring, um, we would not hire somebody who couldn't do networking without AF networking. There's a practical reason for that, which is that we don't use AF networking and we don't have any plans <laughs> to start. But the the other reason is, I so I think just philosophically, there's sort of this important leap that somebody that's learning should probably understand, which is that AF networking is great and it's really useful and it um, makes all these powerful or complicated things way easier. But on the other hand, it's just some code somebody wrote. Like, it's not magic. It's something that somebody wrote on top of existing APIs to extend them or to make them easier to use or whatever. And so I think it is important for them to understand those underpinnings, that those are there, that they could use them too. And maybe even further than that, which I'm not saying they would actually have to dive into this, but some understanding of the fact that even the Apple APIs are not magic. They're code that somebody wrote, you know, and there are lower level APIs under those. And actually, in the case of networking in particular, you can access those if you want. You can drop all the way down and write, like, POSIX networking code. So I personally think it's important that people understand the lower-level APIs, um, and maybe they don't uh, spend a ton of time using them because there's this argument to be made that it's a waste of time, but they should know that they're there. They should not be, like, frightened of them. I'm going to have to agree to the extent that I, I definitely think that when you're talking about building software in a company, you have to just determine sort of where your time is best spent, but it's really important to really understand how things work. In fact, I had a really interesting conversation uh, with an, an Apple engineer, you probably all know, um, specifically about AF networking versus using the native frameworks. And he was of the same opinion as you, Andrew, that it's just not that complicated. And that was an example of where it's just not that complicated, that it's an impediment to learning and that you should know it and you should use it. But that being said, there are in some instances, maybe some other third party libraries that are just not in the core of what your app does, that you your time is better spent focusing on the core functionality of your app. And if it saves you that time and cost, that it's not, I don't draw a hard line in the sand and say, no, we never use third-party software. So I, I have to jump in here and slightly disagree. I think it's helpful to understand underlying technology and why and how it works. But I, I really would have to go back to the purpose of this course. I mean, is the Dev Mountain course to get them to the point where they can write their own apps, or is the Dev Mountain course there to teach them how all of it works? Because to a certain degree, with beginners, I feel like you can get away with hand waving over some some of the stuff. So you can actually put something out there and then just you know say, here's how you do networking and you teach them AF networking, and then they go ahead and they you know, they've learned how to do it with AF networking. And as they gain experience, then they can start to figure out, oh, this depends on NSURL. And so then they're capable, functional programmers, you know, that can participate in the ecosystem and can do the programming and can get the work done without necessarily 
having this deep understanding of, of how the system works. Now, eventually, they're going to have to have it, right? But initially, just showing them, you know, this is the process for doing this kind of thing, I think that's fine. I think you're totally okay doing that. Now, if you came in going for a mid-level or senior position, yeah, I wouldn't hire you unless you understood this is what's happening under the covers. Yeah, the only I think we're actually in a, in agreement, Chuck, in that I, I don't, I don't, I mean, you could get ridiculous, right? You're not going to teach somebody, probably not going to teach somebody the Objective-C runtime at all, and you're certainly not going to teach them how Objective-C message send is implemented in assembly or whatever, right. even though that exists and somebody wrote it. If you want to, you can go see how that's done. I just think there needs to be this idea implanted in their heads that these abstractions or these higher level abstractions, I mean, or third party code or whatever are just that. They're higher level, they're abstractions, there are underpinnings, and maybe they don't need to know all the details, but they do need to know that those details exist and that they're accessible to them and that, I don't know how to put this, but like they're a place to look. That's a possibility. If AF networking doesn't do something they need to do, they do have this option of dropping down to a lower level or when they're debugging, they there is this depth that they need to realize is there and that it's not like off limits to them. Because it I mean, I deal with that every every day basically. Especially when bad bugs come up. I sometimes really have to dive into low levels. And I'm working on one today where I've got a linker error where something can be found in the C standard library on a certain version of OS ten, whatever. And that's where you I don't know the solution, but I I know I can find the solution. So that's the that's sort of the logical leap that I think needs to be made in their head. Would you make this statement like, so for instance, in this case, not to, to belabor it, but because network connections are so ubiquitous in apps these days, that that would be one exception to the, so the general rule of saying, we're not going to do a deep dive in all of these things, but this is one particular case where, you know, there are not really any apps that you're going to be developing anymore that don't need some sort of network capability. So obviously, I bring this up because, like I said, we spend two, three days just on RESTful service communications, right? And we use NSRO connection, NSRO session for the first day, and then the second day we do AF networking, and then from then on we use AF networking. And I've had students and teachers kind of say, why even teach NSRO session? Why even teach uh, NSRO connection, right? So can I can I tell you a funny story? Is that, I don't... <laughs> it, yeah, go ahead. I, so no no I, humor allowed. <laughs> no, no and no stories. Stories don't work on podcasts. <laughs> so I spent my first two years of programming not even knowing AF networking existed. So I was all, that was back even before NSUR sessions were created, so I was all NSURL connection. So I was applying for a job in San Francisco. They had me write some code, and it was a timeline view with images that you would scroll through, and you'd have to load the images. And when I first shipped it, I just kind of shipped it with loading the image in every cell, which obviously was finicky. So I I sat down and wrote my own queuing procedure for the images. So it would queue up all the images and then load them. And then as it loaded, them, it would update the images on the in the cache, and then the cache would load into the UI image views in, in the cells. And so you could flip through the table view, and it was smooth as butter, right? And so I submit this code to this application process to this company, and the first question they ask is, "Why didn't you just use AF networking UI image for this?" <laughs> And I kind of looked at him, and I was like, "What? what is that? <laughs> and I, I didn't want to admit that I didn't know what it was. But they both kind of looked at me, and they said, wait, you, you really don't know what AF networking is. And this has been my experience over and over again with a lot of these libraries where we use, I use some lower-level API, and then I find out that just scores and scores of developers are all using third-party code, right? When I was working at the church, we started like a, one of those little drawer views, just custom-coded. 
And at one point they said, well, we should, we should probably use a third party library for that. And I don't know if, if you guys know what II deck view controller is, but that was like, or view, view deck controller deck view controller, whatever it was. Yes. Yes. I do. I it, do know. It, like everybody was using it at the time and I had never even heard of it. And so this has been a consistent theme for me because like Andrew, I, I'm kind of like not written here is, is kind of my mantra, but um, <laughs> I think there's a balance. And so we definitely have to figure out, especially as we're teaching students as pragmatic as possible. You know, this is how you ship code. This is how you actually start building. Because the truth is, if they spend too much time in the theory of lower level code, that they're not actually writing a lot of code, or they're not building things, and they're not making apps that can be submitted to the app store. If they don't get there, then we miss out. They miss out on a lot of learning opportunities. And even more than that, and this is kind of what's really interesting, you know, Alondo says every app has networking in it. But what's really interesting is not every app, and in fact, I dare say most apps, a great majority of apps do not have uh, custom RESTful uh, APIs to hit. So they're using Parse or Dropbox or Core or CloudKit or these other networking services that are completely abstracted away from even from the, the networking code. And so unless you're working for a company that has a backend that you're hitting, you're likely going to be using an even further abstracted third-party service to reach that backend of that networking code. And so I say that in 30 capstone projects, only one of them had AF networking in it at all. Most of them just had Parse or Dropbox or some other type of backend service, if that makes sense. That's a good point. Yeah, but a lot of those even are going to, they're going to have libraries that wrap around uh, NSURL. They, they just encapsulate the conventions for talking to that service. Yeah, and even more than that, they encapsulate the caching of the data. So Parse just barely released the actual local store of whatever it is that you're fetching from the server. So they don't just wrap around the networking, they also wrap around the caching and the storing and the retrieving and the fetch results controller. I mean, they do, they wrap around so much that I think you could really, if you have a parse app, you could really abstract yourself away from understanding anything in normal API parlance. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm also curious, you said that a lot of your students, they go learn web and then they come learn mobile. I'm interested to know what things that kind of gives them a leg up on and what things that kind of sets them back on. I should point this out too. I, I should have said this earlier. We are in the process. In February, we'll be starting a an immersive course for iOS. And so let me come back to your question and kind of answer it this way. So the students that come from web, we have two web classes that we've been doing. One is after hours and the other has been for the last three months, an immersive course. And so they can be, or six months, they can be take a full-time web course. And what that means is that they come into iOS, which is after hours, and they get their mentors for, you know, a few hours a week. They come from web where they've been working on this full-time and really dedicating all, from nine to five every day. They're with a mentor and they have instruction, you know, twice a day. And they're coming from that into iOS after hours, which I think Maybe for that reason, some of the web guys have taken it a little bit less seriously because they came from the immersive to the after hours. So we actually are launching the immersive uh, because we've seen so much good in the immersive for the web. But as far as programmatically, like what I see, you know, weaknesses or strengths, I think web students, they come in and they are unfazed by the fear of code. So really funny in iOS and well, in, in any code and in, in any code. You have to keep your code in between an opening and a closing bracket, right? You can't just type anywhere and expect it to run. So new students, like, they don't get that. And so 
the first day, like, I'm spending my time walking around being like, no, paste your code here. Like, cut, don't, you know, they've got it after the end. Or, you know, and they're like, what is this compiler error? What, what is this? You know, won't, won't even build. I got, like, red, red everywhere, right? The web students come in with uh, none of that. They understand opening and a closing bracket, and they understand that spaces or periods can make a huge difference. Or semi, the lack of a semicolon is why it won't build. And so the fear, I think, oh, it didn't do what it did on the teacher's computer. Right? Like it did it up on the screen, it did this, but on my computer it did this, I'm screwed. Like no, nothing's going to work. That's how like a new student will feel. Whereas a web student will say, what's different between my computer and the teacher's computer? And they'll be able to kind of process through that. Only because they spent the last 12 weeks going through that experience, and so they're unfazed and not afraid of that. Like I said, as far as technically speaking, like the web students are coming in, they have just learned Spanish, and now they're learning Japanese. The disadvantage for them is that they're burnout. Like, you spend 12 weeks learning Spanish. Now you come in, and I'm like, okay, now it's time to learn Japanese. It seems like, oh, man. By the ninth, tenth week, the web students are like, geez, like, I am not retaining anything anymore. <laughs> and they do, and they do really well. Our, in fact, our best grads have come from both. But, I mean, it's, it is hard. It is 24 weeks of school. It's like a full, a full year of school, and it, it is just nonstop every day, just beating heavy stuff in your brain and practically, you know, building everything you possibly can. And it's, it can be really hard for the students that come from web. Well, we're getting close to uh, picks time. Do you guys have any other questions for Joshua? Can't I'll... think of any. All right. Yeah. Let's go ahead and do the picks then. Alondo, do you have some picks for us? I have one pick this week, and it is an online course site called Udemy. Um, it was recommended to me by uh, one of the managers at my company for uh, helping my nephews uh, in school and just kind of learn topics. I've been testing it out this week and I've found it quite useful. I mean, the courses range from free to some paid classes. Typically, they're not that expensive. Uh, so far, so good, though. It's uh, it's pretty simple to use and uh, it's a helpful site. Awesome. Andrew, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I've got three picks. The first one of these is going to seem a little weird because after this discussion we just had and, and the fact that everybody knows I'm sort of biased against third-party code, but that is, my pick is contributing to open source. Even though I say that, I actually have two libraries that I wrote that are open source that are sort of in the style of AF networking in that they wrap lower-level APIs and add powerful features and, and make them easier to use. And, of course, I use those myself, but I wrote them, but I also hope other people use them, and I especially hope people will contribute to them. And I also, this weekend, was playing around with Carthage, which is a dependency manager that came out recently that we've talked about recently on on iFreaks. And I have started working on a contribution to that to, to fix some outstanding issues. And anyway, so I just think that's a great thing to get involved with. It's a good good way to get to collaborate with other people, to learn new things from them. Carthage is all written in Swift, so it's giving me some good Swift practice. And it's really not as hard as you think. Find a project that you're using, either if there's something that you find that's a deficiency, a bug, or something you'd like to see improved, create your own issue for it. Um, otherwise, look through the list of issues and see if there's one that you can pick off that you can fix yourself and then submit a pull request. I think that's a great way to contribute and also learn. My next pick is one that may have been done before, but it's Arduino. So I've been playing around with Arduino. I've actually been working on a project with Josh where we're using Arduino. But uh, having done firmware and designing hardware with microcontrollers professionally, I'm quite impressed by Arduino. So this is a basically a little microcontroller that you can program very easily. That's the that's really the whole point. You don't have to have any experience with hardware or even programming before to get an Arduino, get it set up, and start doing cool stuff with it. 
really quickly. They've taken away a lot of the steep learning curve that is normally involved. And there's just a huge community and ecosystem around them. So you can get all kinds of sample code and complete projects and all kinds of accessories, so shields that do different things for them. And it's all open source. The hardware and the software are open source. So it's a really cool project. It's gotten very popular the last few years and is being used for all kinds of things. But I really like it. So if you've never done any hardware, I definitely recommend getting an Arduino and diving in. And then sort of going along with that pick is Dash, which I think has probably been picked before. But this is a documentation browser for the Mac and it's it's just a general purpose documentation browser and it has tons and tons of different documentation sets available for download including coco and coco touch api documentation but it has the arduino documentation as a available set so i've been using that as i've been working on this project those are my picks okay so th- i'm i'm new to this so i got i got a couple as as well that's okay so i'll do a really weird one but i think if you've got listeners that care, then this is pretty cool. So Home Depot has uh, Cree LED light bulbs on sale really cheap right now. So you can get a, a four-flow filament for only $2.99, which is like a 60-watt light bulb. Or you can get an, a soft white, which is it's like 2700K. It's a 60-watt equivalent for $5.97. So like we were able to completely do all the LEDs in our whole house for like 200 bucks. And I, I, I know that sounds expensive, but it saves a lot of money and in the long run and, and you feel good about life because they come with a 10-year warranty so you can just get them replaced for 10 years you can get them replaced as long as you keep the PC that's my first my first pick I know it's a little bit weird but and my second pick is a book that as we started talking today this keeps coming back to mind is, is Traction it's a startup guide to getting customers by Gabe Weinberg Gabe is he's the, the man behind he's the CEO of DuckDuckGo and so he this book is on how different traction channels that you can use to build your customer base for your product. So if you have, you know, an independent iOS app, or if you have a book that you're working on, you know, like a side project, these will be 19 different traction channels. Maybe it's 13, but they'll help you find customers for your product. It's super powerful. It's really, really easy read. And I think it will do to marketing what Lean Startup did to product development. Those are my picks. Very cool. Yeah, we were talking before the show and actually bought that book. So uh, my picks are, first off, I've been reading a book called Becoming a Key Person of Influence. And it basically talks through becoming, you know, like it says, a key person of influence in your field. And it's so far just been a very cool book to read. So I, I have to recommend that. And the thing is, is I usually listen to audiobooks. This one doesn't have an audiobook, so I actually have been reading it on my Kindle. And it's awesome. It's so good that I'm actually read, reading it, reading it. So anyway, I'm going to definitely pick that. I don't know if I have any other picks, so I'm probably just going to leave it at that. Uh, thanks for coming, Josh. Thank you for having me. This, this is really cool. I, I love listening to you guys and, and, uh, it's, it's been, it's been fun to chat. Thanks, uh, Joshua. Great. Thanks a lot. If people want to get a hold of you or follow up on what's going on with you or Dev Mountain, what are the best ways for people to do that? Always the best place for me is Twitter. It's J.K. Howland, H-O-W-L-A-N-D, on Twitter. And uh, Dev Mountain is D-E-V-M-T-N on Twitter. And so those are those places. And I'm working on a product, if it's okay to kind of Please, uh, pitch myself. It. It's a leave me alone sign for developers that are working on stuff and they want people to stop bugging them. And it's just a little LED. And Andrew's working on the Bluetooth so that you can turn it on and off with like a keystroke on your Mac. You can find out more at wearewired.in, and it's just these little wired in signs. And I'm having a ton of fun with it. 
And uh, hopefully it's something that, you know, fits your listeners. And if, if it is, then sign up for the mailing list. And then when we, when we launch, we'll let you know about it. Ooh, I think I need one of those. Yeah, I think they'll be cool for independent developers. You can get like, or uh, podcast recorders, for example, you get like an on-air sign and you put it up above your door so that your wife doesn't open the door while you're in the middle of recording. That's exactly what I'm looking at, actually. And earlier, I'm trying to remember, I think it was this morning with Adventures in Angular, my three-year-old came in here crying because my five-year-old wasn't being nice to him. And my wife had run over to her sister's house for a few minutes. And so, yeah, it'd be nice to have that sign up and basically says, do not disturb or you will die or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually have an on-air sign, one of our signs that says on-air, Chuck. I don't have it outside my door yet. I need to do that. You could do custom text, so you will die is probably possible, actually. <laughs> Death to intruders. All right. Anyway, thanks for coming. We'll wrap up the show and we'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum. 